This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay welcome Greg Renoff, Matt Wardlaw, Eric Grubbs, and Chip Midnight for a roundtable discussion on Van Halen in the 90s. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 252, 252, we're in season five, and uh, we're doing a roundtable, Jay. I think you mean it's episode 5150. Oh, good call. Yeah, that's three, the... Uh, or 316. Or OU812, whatever you want to do, <laughs> whatever numbers you want to plug in there. This is our Van Halen episode. This is the first of a series that we're going to do maybe once or twice a year called In the 90s, which we're going to take a band that sold upwards of 10 million albums in the 80s Mm. and see how they transitioned into the 90s. There's a lot of bands that hugely successful in the 80s and the 90s were either very good or very bad to them. And we could do a whole podcast just on this topic because I don't true. think there's any band that existed in the 70s or 80s that made it through the 90s without doing something strange or <laughs> doing something completely out of the norm for them. That's true. The 90s were a... Um, I mean, Bruce Springsteen disbanded the E Street Band for the 90s. I mean, you can pretty much go to the list of everybody. And Save that for the Bruce, Springs- Bruce Springsteen episode, Jay. Let's not jump yeah. ahead. That's, I know, I'm just saying. That's for 2018 when we get to Bruce Springsteen. But right now we're here to talk about Van Halen, and we have a a large roundtable, probably the largest roundtable we've had. We usually have only two or three people, but this was such a popular discussion topic. I got emails upon emails. Can I join this episode? And I said, we can only have the highest quality of discussion for this episode. <laughs> so I have cobbled together this uh, roundtable of the... People that I think are gonna are gonna bring so much to our Van Halen discussion, and of course, if we're gonna talk about Van Halen, we have to have on the man who has just released the book Van Halen Rising: How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. Joining us from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mr. Greg Renoff. Greg, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you. I was I was ready for the uh, not cobbled together, but the Cabo wobbled together. <laughs> <laughs> I was so ready for that joke, and it's oh, I, there are so many puns that are going to be happening in the, during this episode. Thanks for having me. So I have just finished the book. I absolutely loved it, and um, I just want to do a quick question with you. Why Why did you write it? Like, where did the idea come from? You know, uh, the idea came from me being an obsessed Van Halen fan for many decades, way back to the 80s, and then reading many, many books and many, many articles and always having these little tidbits here and there where I would read uh, about a wet t-shirt contest and an interview or I would read a little bit about how Van Halen got into Gazzari's or I'd read a little bit about the Gene Simmons um, episode. And I, I would never get a sense that the full story was really being told. Um, not that anyone was holding it back, but that it was really the digging that needed to be done was being done. And, um, you know, I just, as a historian, I, I got increasingly frustrated with the lack of information. I just decided to start digging myself and um, wanted to really 
find out how Van Halen became Van Halen. And for me, that was the, the key question as the book moved forward through the different stages that I went through with research and writing. It's just it kept coming back to that. How did Van Halen get so good that they could um, blow Black Sabbath off the stage in 1978? How did a band that was playing Gazzari's in 1976, uh, able to steal the show at Anaheim Stadium, which is just down the road, basically, from Gazzari's, uh, just a few, you know, tw 24 months later or whatever it was. And so those are the things I kept coming back to and just wanted to know about how Van Halen formed and uh, became so good. Awesome. And people can go to VanHalenRising.com to order the book, merchandise, that kind of stuff. And they can follow you on Twitter at Greg Renoff. Lots of cool pictures that you post from that era and, and interesting tidbits. Enjoy all that stuff. It's It's been a, uh, you know, I, I read the book and I would be reading like 20 pages a night and then turning to my wife and sharing some tidbit and she has a little to no interest in Van Halen. She'd be like, oh, that's that's nice. And I'm like, but you got to, you got to, you got to, well, <laughs> this is so cool. And she's like, okay, well, that's, that's great. So, awesome. uh. I also noticed, Greg, you were the go-to guy during the summer tour. Like people would be tweeting you all the time about what was, what did this interaction between Dave and Eddie, what, what did that mean? What was your take on this? Hey, if you're if you're handed the if you're handed the baton, you got to run with I it. Right? I was just like, well, let me let me tell you exactly what that means. But obviously, right. I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> I love that. It's fun. So our, our other rookie joining us this episode from the Cleave up in uh, up in uh, Northeast Ohio, Mr. Matt Wardlaw, writer for Ultimate Classic Rock Magazine, Cleveland Scene, a couple others that I'm forgetting. Matt, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. And I'm thrilled to announce uh, my new book for 2016, um, Red Rocker Rising, How Sammy Hagar <laughs> Saved the Rest of What Was Left of Van Halen. <laughs> oh, no. I want an advance. <laughs> it's great to be here, guys. I'll, I'll blurb it. I'll blurb it gladly. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the natural companion, so that has to happen. Also joining us, a couple of uh, veterans who have been here uh, many times. They are here to weigh in on our roundtable from Dallas, Texas. Writer. For the uh, Dallas Observer, author of Post and When We Were the Kids, Mr. Eric Grubbs. Good Eric, evening, th gentlemen. Thanks for coming back. Eric, please yes. tell me you're you're writing a Gary Sharon book. Not yet. <laughs> oh. Yeah, not yet. It, of it all might of happen someday. It, would be you. it has yeah. to be you. <laughs> do, do a 33 and a third on Van Hill and 3. Oh, you're going to bring up that screw, aren't you? <laughs> you're going to bring it we up. We love you? it. We love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sane anger pitch did not even make, you know, the the one hundred hey, polls. I'm right there with you. Neither yeah, I know, and I and I know, and I mean, it's like I'm not surprised, but I'm glad I at least tried. I yeah. thought people wanted a book about Aqua, but they don't, and that's fine. <laughs> so Two different pitches about Miley Cyrus's bangers, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, Both got yeah. They made the top one hundred. That's here nor there. Let's talk about. Our fourth member of the roundtable, Mr. Chip Midnight, proprietor of KidsInterviewBands.com. Chip, just returning from Cleveland, Ohio, where he saw the Browns. <laughs> the Saw the Browns be brown. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good evening. Sorry. Thanks for and joining I'm, us. I'm working on the uh, Wolfgang Rising book. Mm. <laughs> the resurgence of Van Halen. <laughs> yes. The there you go. He is the he is like kind of the puppet master now of the apparently 
Yeah. That, He's running the show. That was going to be my take. One of my takes here. Yes. Okay. Well, let's get into our takes. Um, I want to set the stage for what we're going to do here. We're going to talk about Van Halen. We're going to talk about the releases. We're going to talk about how the band evolved in the 90s. Obviously, there's a lot of drama with the band in the 90s. Only had three releases, 1991's For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, 1990... Well, three album releases, I should say. 1995's Balance and 1998's Three. Then they also had the Live Right Here, Right Now in 1993 and the Best of Volume 1 in 1996. We'll get to all that stuff. Let's set the stage for Van Halen. So the first release is 1991. This is a pivotal year of the 90s. This is the year of... Not only for all unlawful carnal knowledge, but this is Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. This is Nirvana's Nevermind. This is the year that supposedly the great slayers of, of hair metal, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, rose up and um, took over the world. The, the real history is not as clean as that, but that's the narrative that people like to talk about. So let's go back and talk about this album, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, to set the stage for the beginning of the decade. I want to go around the table, the virtual table, and um, talk about when this album came out. Uh, I think the first single was Pound Cake, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the single, and then, because I, I believe the single came out before the album, it was like the preview for the album. What our impressions were for Pound Cake, and then eventually the album that came out. Greg, since you're our rookie and our resident Van Halen expert, I'm going to start with you. You know, when the album came out, I was immediately struck by the difference in the sound. Um, I mean, the production. I, I thought that uh, OU812, as much as I wanted to like the production on it, it didn't sound very good. It sounded sort of thin, and I think that's sort of a, a, a staple of anyone who talks about the sound of Van Halen records. And, you know, when you immediately heard Pound Cake, you could hear the, the different drum sound and then more zeppelin-esque production and then you look at the back of the album and you see oh yeah andy johns is the guy who produced it with ted templeman and uh that was what struck me uh, more than anything else i remember seeing the the pound cake video and just hearing the the tones and then the uh and of course the drill yeah. as well the whole the whole pulling out the drill was it was kind of an interesting little twist there for eddie which uh we can talk about too but yeah that was the this for me was the, was the actual uh the sound of the album matt your thoughts on that I'm going to agree with Greg. I mean, a big thing that stuck out right away was the sound of the record. I mean, it was, you know, one of those records that I can clearly remember, um, you know, going to the record store and, you know, with my friends and we all, you know, bought a copy and then choose, uh, you know, whose house we were going to go back to and listen to it for the first time. And it's like, you know, we'd already heard pound cake, but like starting to hear some of the other stuff on the record, like judgment day. Um, I mean, that song just kind of jumped out at song number two is like, you know, wow. You know, compared to the previous two records that I heard, like this record has some teeth. So it was, it was mm -hmm. a very um, exciting record to hear out of the gate from Van Halen. And I think that, you know, now, you know, as you mentioned, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, you know, in context with what was, you know, coming out at the time. I mean, it's a really interesting record for, um, you know, Van Halen to put out um, kind of in the beginnings of the grunge era, which I don't think that they were anticipating at all. But it, you know, sits pretty well in that era, you know, looking back. Your thoughts. 
Yeah, I was in seventh grade when the pound cake video just showed up. And this was also around the time of the Inter Sandman video, as well mm -hmm. as the Smells Like Teen Spirit and Live and Even Flow videos. So, I mean, it was completely different than what I had heard of Van Halen before. And I had been a Van Halen fan pretty much since Jump, hearing it on the radio as a little kid in uh, New Orleans. And like what was previously said is like the drill. I was like, a drill on a Van Halen song. <laughs> but I mean, but once the drums kicked in and and then when, especially when Michael Anthony's bass line came in with uh, Eddie's guitar, I mean, it's just like, okay, this kicks ass. And, and I remember very fondly seeing all the videos that they made for it. I think they released like four or five singles from that. And, and those were on, yeah, they were on Six. constant rotation on MTV. And uh, I, I'd say that that record really holds up well. And, and not to get a little ahead of everybody, but the thing was is that all of Van Halen's stuff throughout the 90s never to me really sounded like they tried to cater to what grunge was. Um, and so I admire them for that. So that's that's my overall thing about Van Halen. We can discuss more about mm. my, my my attitude about Van Halen's <laughs> legacy since then. So Well, we'll discuss uh, whether or not they, they went to grunge uh, uh, territory or not, but we'll get to that yeah. later. Chip, thoughts? So, <clears throat> this is the first Van Halen record that I didn't buy. Whoa, and I think whoa, that, whoa. that, uh, that uh, set a precedent for everything afterwards. Wow. Still, wow. Why not? What happened? Uh, Tell us your I pain. Mean, I was going to say, you guys know my, <laughs> um, my uh, arena rock love yeah. of the 80s oh, yes. and the 90s. I was one of those people that um, the first time I heard Nirvana, as much as I loved hair metal, and even though I still love it today, when I heard Nirvana, I stopped listening to anything like this. I mean, I, I know I saw the singles and I saw the videos and stuff, but um, really had no interest in it. And uh, actually haven't, I think I bought it about a year ago and I found it for a dollar in a used bin. And that's the first time I've actually owned the CD. That is shocking. I'm wow. My, yeah. I'm floored by all that. <laughs> it's true. I need to. Well, I need to take a minute to like. I gotta uh, gather process that. That's. Uh, <laughs> that's like to be telling me there's no Santa Claus. I mean, I really for for years, yeah, probably like ninety one to like ninety. I don't know when I got back into to like hair metal and arena rock, but it was probably not till the late nineties, even early two thousands. Like Nirvana had that big of an influence on my listening habit. So uh, Alice and Chains opening for them on this tour didn't draw you in? <laughs> no. You're like, I'm not going to go see Van Halen, but this band, Alice and Chains. Nope. Did you guys see, see Alice and Chains on that tour? I did, yeah. Were they good when you saw them? Because when I saw them in Cleveland, it blossomed. They were terrible. That's where I saw them. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, did. I was not impressed. I mean, it was. I don't think they were a band ready for that kind of that kind of stage either yeah. it sounded very thin and they had a hard time connecting with the, the audience it was it was very odd a lot I of people heard, standing around i heard facelift at a party a few you know a few months after that and you know we're here this record and just song after song it's good stuff and finally i asked somebody like you know you know what's this that we're listening to and they say allison chain's facelift and you know i was at the same party with all of the same folks that had gone with us that van halen show we were floored because they were just awful mm-hmm Anyway, like, we could uh, go into a whole uh, a whole podcast about the uh, Van Halen opening acts over the years and their their <laughs> Van Halen's <laughs> interesting habit of selecting very very poor opening acts, which I have a very very strong suspicion and some evidence actually was done to make sure that everyone stood in the in the uh, 
hallway and bought T-shirts while uh, the opening acts performed, Van Halen T-shirts. Really? So mm-hmm. I, can point, I can pull a little full circle here. So the first time I heard Alice in Chains was I bought the cassette because I was going to Akron, to Akron Agora to see Extreme oh. and Alice in Chains open oh. action. And that's how I got yeah. turned on to Alice in Chains. Hmm. Wow. Extreme, what tour? Uh, it's porno graffiti tour. Oh, that would have been awesome. Cool. It was so weird. You're, yeah. So you're writing the Gary Sharon book. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> right. At least one of us is doing it. He's more qualified. <laughs> that was my first interaction with Eric Grubbs was I sent him a, uh, a Sharon era Van Halen bootleg. Yeah, because here's what happened randomly over a year ago. I just, you know, if you follow me on Twitter at Eric underscore Grubbs, I randomly tweet out things that, uh, well, sometimes they're not anywhere near like the, the, the topics of the day. I just randomly think of stuff and I tweet it out. It's like, you know, Van Halen three is not as bad as people make it out to be. And Annie Zaleski, who I'd been following and she had been following me for a few years, just uh, as writers, she's like, you need to talk to my husband. Here he is. <laughs> and the friendship began through that. And so he sends me a bootleg and, you know, we've, we've, we've traded music over the years. But this is the first time that we have actually heard each other speak mm. and been in a conversation, even if it's through the Internet. I've had tears in my eyes nearly the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't his voice beautiful? It is. It's just soothing. I'm it's booming. Uh, he's got me under his spell. It only took, I don't know, about, you know, uh, I'd say 51 and 50 seconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We need to talk about the second single off this record, which is Right Now. That came out, uh, I believe, in the following winter, Ooh, like February 92. That's the one, two, three, four. That's the fifth single. Not according to the Wikipedia. It was Runaround was two, mm. right? Okay. Top of the world. Yeah. Dream is over right now. And then man on a mission. Really? I believe. I believe. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember right now coming way later in the whole single release cycle. Okay. Well, I don't care about those other ones. We need to talk about right now because that's the culturally (laughs) significant single. Okay. Talking about Crystal Pepsi. Talking about Crystal Pepsi. Also talking about Van Halen writing a socio-political song well i don't know if they're writing a song but definitely inferring that in the video yeah, for yes. right here right now which i i re- actually went back and rewatched every single video of theirs from the 90s uh <sighs> last night while i was um drinking and uh this video is really messed up i mean there are some really weird things in this video including the line that says right now god is killing moms and dogs because he has to Mm-hmm. I didn't remember that the first time I watched the <laughs> video. So uh, it's been 20 years since I, or so, since I saw that. And there are a lot of other weird ones. And there are a lot of ones that are so still spot on that makes me think that Rage Against the Machine stole half the lines from this video <laughs> and turned it into their career. Because uh, there's lines about, now, now. you know, oil men and or, or oil companies and old men still rule the world and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, this is a really for a for a for a backyard party band from California. This is a pretty heavy video. Well, I think that's that's why it's important to note that it was later. It was a one of the last singles, because I think by that point, like when the album first came out, 
the groundswell hadn't happened on all the what you know Chip is talking about. I think at least you know from a, a pop culture standpoint, by the time right now came around, I think this video kind of helped them like stay credible within that MTV. At that point, you know MTV was a hundred percent Pearl Jam and sure. Nirvana and, and this is the uh, yeah, and this was the end of the the Reagan Bush era, and for sure there was that shift taking place where uh, those types of messages seem to be much more. Uh, I don't know, more accepted in mainstream culture, those types of mm-hmm. messages oh, yeah. where they've been if sort was, of like, If it was serious, you know, that's what they wanted. They didn't mm-hmm. want the party stuff mm-hmm. um, because that's what had really dominated the mid to late 80s, especially with bands like Van Halen, um, where it was like, ooh, they're saying something. They're saying something about what it's like right now. And, yeah. you know, hey, being, being a middle schooler at the time, I bought into it. And I mean, it's a really catchy song, great great piano melody on it but you know it's a video that made you think and what it it won a number of mtv uh video music awards right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was big i mean and it wouldn't have i don't think it would have worked if it had been the first single and i don't think like pound cake or runaround would have worked if they were the last singles i mean because this right. album was they worked this album for a long time mm-hmm. so i mean to get six singles out of it and it took it, them a long time to make it right it was like they were working on it for a long time yeah more, it's I mean, like more than a year right yeah well according to again the wikipedia they started recording in march of 1990 and then wrapped it up in april of 91 so you're talking about over a year at the 5150 studio uh to record this album and that's just to record it so i don't know how you know from the book that i read a lot of the early stuff was you know woodshedded over years and years and years i don't know if that was the same process as the band moved through their career if they or if they wrote in the studio or if a lot of that stuff was done in you know jam sessions beforehand or not i think it's in sammy's book and i will always defer to matt on this issue um i I believe sammy sort of says that eddie and andy johns were drinking very heavily during this entire period i think alex was sober and i think there was a lot of uh drift it seems like that's what Sammy's implying with the way that things are being done. And in fact, then Sammy says that he fires, so to speak, fires Andy Johns as the producer of his vocals and brings in Templeman. And that's why, according to according to Sammy, that's why Templeman was brought in to help produce mm. the record is because um, because Andy was was had a fairly severe drinking problem from what I, I read from uh, Hagar's book. And that was causing delays and issues with uh, getting things done. That's why uh, Templeman was brought in to kind of work with Sammy, and I think to crack the whip and get things finished. Interesting. Let me ask you guys, because one of the reviews that I read of this is in uh, is at All Music. It's uh, by Tom Erlewine. And he says that he felt that Stephen this was... Thomas. Stephen Rowe. Thomas. That's yeah. true. Um he says that there was more diversity to OU812, and this is a much more straightforward record. But it also, and I hadn't thought of this, because oftentimes the limited vocal range is tagged on, on David Lee Roth. But he said that, that a lot of this album shows the limitations of Sammy Hagar's vocals. And I was curious what you guys yeah. thought about that. I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I've heard anybody ever criticize the limitation of Sammy Hagar's vocals. I mean, even Gary Sharon, you know, says to this day, singing Van Halen material, Sammy era Van Halen materials made him 
a much better singer than he ever was before that. Now, is this as difficult or high as some of the stuff on 5150? Mm, maybe not, but I think a song like, I don't know, I'm not a singer, but it sounds like, it seems like a song like right now is, is probably not easy to sing. I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah, I would say, you know, similarly, songs like Man on a Mission, um, Run Around. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff on this 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 album that is, um, I mean, Top of the World is is in a higher register that would be tough for a lot of folks. So, yeah, I, yeah. I don't agree with that. And the, and the diversity, I guess he's he's talking about um, stuff like right fin- now. Finish, what you, finish What You Started, I guess. I mean, he says that, is he saying OU812 was more diverse? Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Yeah, and this this was a simpler, more straightforward rock record. I would yeah. agree with that, probably. Yeah, I could get on board with that. Which Less I keyboards, was, you know. Yeah, I, I I mean to be honest, I was disappointed in OU812. I mean, at the time, I was really hoping for a lot of. There's not very many riffs on that record. It's it's very keyboard and mm-hmm. oriented, and uh, so when you know I heard Pound Cake, I was like, oh man, here we go. Like <laughs> this is going to be. Eddie had a whole new guitar sound and, mm. you know, it's, yeah, there's piano on here, but that's pretty much it for the keyboards. There's not much else other than right now in terms yeah, of. Uh, didn't Eddie have his new signature line of guitars by then? I remember mm-hmm. seeing it in the pound yeah. cake video. So that yeah, could the music definitely band guitars. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And his own, I think, series of amps at that point too. The yeah. PB the 5150s. 5150s. So yeah, it was all kind of bundled together as like the new Eddie Van Halen, I, I remember, in terms of the guitar tone and all the equipment. I think that's yeah. what was kind of cool was, you know, you know, not only the sounds, but, you know, seeing all the new gear that Eddie had. I mean, it did definitely feel like, you know, kind of an Eddie that had been like freshly tuned up, you know, for this record. Um, it was it was all very exciting to hear. Honestly, right right now is my least favorite track on the record. Like I that even before it got overplayed on MTV and all that, like I, I just have never liked that tune. Hmm. I, I could see the, maybe the argument saying the limitations in Sammy Hagar's like songwriting or lyric abilities would start to show on this record. Whereas I think on 5150, you know, it went to, it was a little bit uh, easier to forgive. I think when you get some songs on here, like, I don't know, spanked and there's a couple, there's a couple others where there's some, the lyrics start to get, especially with the times changing, I think it's much easier to scrutinize them. I mean, even Pound Cake. I mean, musically, that song is amazing. And I love the harm, uh, the melodies and whatnot. But the lyrics sometimes are a little eye-rolling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I could, I could see that. Maybe if you're going to say start to see some limitations, uh, I would say it's more on the lyric side of things. Probably because the big three, you know, the, the, the singles that came out, you mentioned earlier, Pound Cake, Run Around, Top of the World, those are all very, like, easy, not easy, they're very identifiable singles. Right yeah. now is not, I don't think, a clear single, necessarily. I mean, it's got a big hook, but it's five and a half minutes long, almost, and it's not necessarily, you know, a radio single in the same way that those other three songs are. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to hear with the with the piano how that fits on rock radio at this time. You know, I could right. definitely see that. Are you I considering was, the piano the hook? Hmm, might be. I mean, certainly not. I mean, the chorus isn't that hooky. Yeah, because I think that's I think that's kind of what a lot of people latched on to. You know, mm-hmm. that obviously in the the I don't know the. 
the lyrics and the positivity and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I just the whole thing when I heard it, I just kind of just thought it was a throwaway track. And the way it's on where it's positioned on the record, I can almost see them thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. Being at nine is it's a strange place to put that song. To consider and now in hindsight, with how big it was, when I revisited the record, I'd forgotten how far back it was in the mm-hmm. track listing. I'd forgotten how far down in the track listing that at the end of the record, that you know, top of the world's at the end of the record. Yeah, yeah. Especially because we were still. I mean, this was wasn't this like the tail end of cassettes? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I mean, lots of fast yeah. forwarding happening in yeah. lots of kids' Walkmans. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about. It's the first album. Was this, in your opinion, and I'll go around the room and ask everybody, was this a successful release to kick off the 90s for Van Halen? Greg, I'll start with you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely was, especially in light of the fact that, again, I think that, you know, OU812, I, I don't think was a particularly strong record. I mean, yeah, I know it sold fairly well, um, but I think I think it was a disappointment as compared to 5150. I mean, I think that's fair to say. And so I think this album, to me, kind of reestablished the uh, the Van Halen songwriting bona fides in some way that I don't know like again maybe getting back to what we just said about OUA one two the stuff is a little bit less heavy I guess in some sort of way it just doesn't have the balls that this one has and so for me um, this is this is probably my favorite Hagar era. this is my favorite Hagar era record and so for me it has the the mixture of the uh, of the the stuff that we kind of look at to say that makes you know Eddie the, the phenomenal guitar player the stuff on uh, you know Judgment Day but it also has as we talked about enough songs that really you know can could make a huge impact on radio and on MTV. They, you know, this was, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how many singles they put out with it from it when you guys say that, but it's actually true. So I think this is, was a very successful record for the, for Van Halen. Matt successful, unsuccessful. Yeah, I think it's absolutely successful. I mean, um, Greg mentions OUA one, two, and I think that, you know, the production issues with the OUA one, two record, you know, perhaps, um, maybe overshadowed, um, what could have been a better record because that's a record that I go back to now. And, um, song wise, um, I like a lot of songs on the OUA one, two record, but I think that coming on the heels of the 5150 record, um, OUA one, two was, I don't know, a slight, small letdown. Um, and certainly, you know, after hearing, you know, 5150 and after hearing OUA one, two, um, I think a lot of folks were very curious to hear, you know, where Van Halen was going to go with their next record. And um, there was certainly um, a confidence that you heard, like, right from the moment that you, you know, hear Pound Cake is the first single. And then certainly when you got the record, you hear Pound Cake and, you know, Judgment Day, you're like going, OK, this could be OK. Um, and I think that also I think that on the tour, um, I think that they you know, opened up with like the first, you know, five or six songs from the record in sequence. And so certainly they had confidence in the record. Um, and overall, they played a heavy amount of the record in the live set. Um, so I think it was a, a very successful um, opening shot for them in the 90s. And I think it was um, generally well received by Van Halen fans, I would say. Eric. I would say it definitely set them up for the rest of the 90s uh, as far as relevancy. Um, I mean, by the time of Balance and even by the time of uh, Van Halen 3, I mean, people were still kind of buzzing off of the right now. <laughs> um, so it, it, it was a very, very big success. And yes, this is tangential to say, but this is, an, this is a very frustrating point I have with people, especially on Facebook, that like to pretend that Van Halen stopped existing after uh, David Lee Roth left the band. 
and it's easy to discount a, any band after a critical member leaves the band. But when you're talking about Van Halen, you cannot deny the cultural impact that Sammy Hagar's era had on the band. As a matter of fact, I believe he was in the band longer than he than David Lee Roth was in the band. So to pretend like this over this half portion of the band didn't exist, I'm like, you, you know, it's it's like only it's it's like only reading like the first three chapters and then skipping till the end and being like, oh, okay, that was a good book. And it's like, no, you missed like seven chapters. <laughs> so that's my little rant. So Dave's almost been in the band this time longer than he was the first time. <laughs> I yeah, mean, isn't he coming yeah. close here? We're almost at eight years. He's been yeah. back in the and band. How many songs have they written? New songs have they written? <laughs> Zero. Okay. What does that tell you? Okay. All those songs from, you know, different kind of tension or different kind of truth. You know, oh, I'm getting the Buzzcocks record uh, mixed up with this. Those were all <laughs> old songs. Okay, folks. Those were old songs that were written before the first Van Halen record. But, oh, no. It's, oh, it's so cool to like Van Halen. You get, well, I always liked it with Roth. I mean, it's just like you are just denying. I get very. Uh, obviously very upset when people clearly jeez well when clearly people want to piss over a time that i think was very relevant to me and many kids my age so i'm gonna think, get so yeah. i think it's safe to say they were they're almost two different bands so in a way yeah definitely i mean the, but i mean it's eddie van halen michael yeah. anthony's great bass lines and his wonderful out of out of this world backing vocals with alex's phenomenal drumming and the one different band uh, with Van with um, Sammy Hagar scored, I believe, Eric, um, what, four number one albums? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right. So, so well, yeah. <laughs> and, and and this just gets to uh, one of the things I tried to do with the with the end of the book a little bit is uh, it was talked about in the beginning, too, was in the introduction and inclusion about the, the legacy of Van Halen and sort of all of this stuff we're talking about with the Hagar versus dave and the sharon stuff it's all sort of washed van halen's legacy out for everybody i think i mean for the worst for hagar for the worst for roth for everybody i mean just because of all of this sort of this van halen politics i remember matt sent out a tweet of someone wearing a, 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 some sort of shirt at, at uh at the van halen show this summer and he said van halen politics are in full effect and i said yeah i mean thought to myself yeah it is yeah. politics it definitely is it's sort of you know i think that's why we don't we meaning rock fans in general kind of have van halen down a couple notches a lot of times in the minds from you know, I don't know the Who, Zeppelin, some of these other bands because of all this stuff that went on that didn't really, you know, in some ways taint those other bands in the same sort of way. Yeah. Well, it's, and I, it's, it's almost, I mean, you can't, you can't uh, not uh, make the band responsible for some of that. I mean, I can't think yeah. of any other bands where they allowed two eras to exist that almost have a wall between them. You know, I, mm -hmm. I can't, you know, when Ronnie James Dio took over at Black Sabbath, they were like, okay, you're going to be singing some Aussie songs. Right, Tough right. shit. Yeah. And Sammy, you know, pretty much got it down to what two songs, a Panama and Jump are the only two songs he would ever sing. And Dave is never going to sing any Sammy songs. So they've kind of, you know, created this themselves and having this uh, completely segregated. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I got to stress, I've been, I've always been a David Lee Roth fan as well as a Sammy Hagar and Gary Sharon fan. It's just like, I like all eras, but you know, you bring it up on Facebook for some reason, people only want to talk about the Roth era. <laughs> and it's like, I, I understand, but at the same time, don't piss all over Sammy Hagar because he did a lot of wonderful things for that band. You know what you're saying, Eric, is that there needs to be a dedicated Van Halen pod podcast. Because anytime you have people on Facebook pissed off, that means it's good fodder for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll co-host it with Matt Wardlaw. Uh, Van podcast. There you yeah. go.
I think the record did two two things important. One, it's Van Halen fans love it because it's it's a rock record, right? I mean, Eddie's playing is great on it. It's all guitar oriented. I think the other thing it did though is it it kept them culturally relevant. You know, right now was a big hit, and it kept them sort of on top of the rock world. So, you know, success for sure. Chip, I know you only got this album like a year ago, but you're on board with uh, everybody else? Yeah, yeah. I definitely think like right now I've set them up for the 90s. Um, and as I look over the track listing, I mean, although I intentionally or unintentionally ignored most of this stuff in the 90s, I know all the singles. I mean, they were everywhere, even if I was not listening to them or listening to the right radio stations. Like I know... I know all the singles. It's the it's the non singles that um, that I don't know. Well, do we need to talk about live right here, right now? Which was the it's not uh, really a live record, by the way. Yeah, in well, reading clearly. about this, <laughs> it's uh, pretty much it was very poorly played live, and they went and started fixing things, which then threw all the vocals out of whack. And then yeah. basically, uh, Sammy had to go in and re-record all the vocals for the entire thing while watching a video of himself performing Mm. and uh (laughs) which just like it's an odd document i I think it's 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 so strange for me because like i said i loved foreign lawful carnal knowledge i saw them on this tour i was a huge fan of them about the time this live album came out and i never got into it like i just couldn't it just didn't make any sense to me which you know at that at that point i'm like anything van halen you know bring it on and this record was so clearly not live i just didn't understand the point <laughs> it sounded like they played the record back and just dumped a bunch of crowd noise on top of it it's like why would i listen to this version of the song if i could just and it was one of those albums too that everyone's house you i remember everyone's house you went to in the 90 was a friend of mine it would like always be stacked up it didn't seem like anyone was really listening to right. it very much but right, it was always right. the, the fat boy cd was there it was always like you know oh yeah i've got the right here right now but then you just look at it you're like eh. I don't want to listen to this again. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I've got a very like silly goody two shoes story with with uh, right here right now. Is that uh, I borrowed it from an older friend of mine, and uh, there's I was expecting. Well, it's just going to be the songs, right? And well, <laughs> I was so paranoid of like my parents hearing like curse words in any <laughs> music that I listen to. So when Sammy starts like talking in the middle of songs or in at, in between songs, I was like, oh, my God, he said ass in, in on jump instead <laughs> of my backs against the record machine. You know, hearing that, I mean, it's like in, in retrospect, I mean, it's, it's laughable, but, you know, clearly uh, I turned out OK, or at least I think I did. But uh, mm. so, hmm. so, yeah, that, that was my experience with it right here, right now. But I, I listened to it recently and I had read uh, Red by uh, Sammy Hagar. And you can hear how fake the crowd sounds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's about as fake as the crowd that you hear on Kiss Alive. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it just it, it, it's just really a performance sold as a live record to really kind of cash in on the popularity of for a lawful carnal knowledge. And, and so who does Hagar pin the blame on for this? Is he, does he uh, dump on Andy Johns again in the book? I can't remember. Does anyone remember? I don't remember. He said he blamed. Well, here's the quote that I read 
from him that's that's in Wikipedia. The problem was they re-recorded almost the entire live album because Eddie was out of tune or Al had sped up or slowed down. They fixed everything. Only now that Eddie was playing in tune, my singing was off key. And and where Al sped up in Runaround, now I'm singing ahead of the beat. Now I had to go back in the studio and redo all my vocals. I wanted to kill those guys. They put me in a room with a video of the concert, gave me a microphone, and I stood there and sang the whole fucking concert one time through, just yeah. like it was a live performance. <laughs> so it sounds like maybe Eddie and Alex were in the in the garage tinkering. and Yeah. And this is probably where, I don't know the story about how uh, For Love of Car Knowledge was created. Uh, I, it sounds more band-oriented, you know? It, maybe, it is, this, is this the point at which it becomes... You know, Eddie locking himself in the studio and making music on his own and then having people sing over it. I mean, is this is this live record sort of the beginning of that? I don't know. It's a good question. Anybody yeah. have an answer? I, mean, I, think, I think Landy and, and uh, Eddie locked themselves in the studio in 1983. That was when they, they were locking yeah. Roth and Templeman out of the studio right. while they worked on the music for days and days. And so, right. yeah. Well, they did the same thing with 5150 as well, I recall. Um there was a whole deal. Greg, do you recall? Was it because uh, I know I talked to Sammy about this. Sammy and Mick Jones. I think it was. Um, God, who was it? Um, I guess it was when. Would it have been when was Templeman involved with that record, Greg? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Okay. Because he, um, uh, he did uh, the uh, Eat Him and Smile with Roth. Oh, uh, I think it was. I think it was Don Landy because, you know, Don allegedly threatened to burn the tapes, but there was a whole thing <laughs> where um, they kept moving the tapes around. Yeah, that's 80, That's 1984. Yeah. Oh, that was 84. All right. Yeah. Never mind. Well, it's a great story, though, yeah, that uh, Don Landy threatened to burn the master tapes if uh, basically if Ted didn't leave Eddie and, and Don alone. That was basically the implication, if I remember correctly. But there was some drama with 5150 as well. So, so yeah, I would say that, like, I think Greg said this, but, yeah, I would say that goes back to at least 1984 and probably before that. Well, it continues into balance as I segue into that record. Uh, it was released in January of 95 and recorded over, let's see, actually shorter than the last album, from May to September of 94. We're, so we're talking about... You know, what is that, six months? Five months? Somewhere in there? There's an interesting uh, bit of drama with this record. I think there's probably an interesting bit of drama with every Van Halen record. But um, apparently Sammy had checked out quite a bit when it came to this record. He was only showing up for two hours a day uh, to do vocals. And a a lot of his vocals actually weren't even done at the 5150 Studios. They were tracked in Vancouver with Bruce Fairbairn. as I say it, Fairbairn? Fairbairn, yeah. Okay. Fairbairn, yeah. Michael Anthony had two kids at this point, and he was like, hey, you know, I, uh, I'll be there when you need me, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be around well, as much. Is this the first record that he doesn't really play on, or is, this, is that happening before this record? That's a good Matt, question. Matt or Greg, do you guys know the history? I mean, he's credited, of, so. Basically, when Eddie starts just playing all the bass parts. I, I will tell you that um, when I was in uh, Pasadena at the book event with Templeman, someone asked Templeman that question, and Templeman said, whenever I was in the studio, Mike played. That's okay. what he said, basically. He's like, you know, whatever, you know, to the best of my knowledge, whenever I was there, Mike, you know, Mike played 
because when I was there, he was playing. They were playing in a room together, especially in the early records. And so, you know, Ted wasn't around for 5150, OU812, or um, Balance. And this is also the album in which Eddie was now um, sober. He had uh, found a therapist named Satkar Khalsa. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right at all. But basically, um, you know, I, I find that interesting. Based, uh, We'll get to the, some of the videos for this album. There are some different textures and tones uh, on this record, and they vary wildly. So the first single that Wikipedia told me was The Seventh Seal. The actual, like, big... I don't think they had a video that went with it, but the big first single... In, in reality, was Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do, which is a pretty dark song. Uh, it's got uh, Sammy screaming, uh, score me some heroin, which is a odd thing to, to be hearing him say. And it's a um, contrasted with another single, Can't Stop Loving You, which is like one of the poppiest songs they ever wrote. So this is a pretty schizophrenic record. Uh, and I'm curious what everyone's reaction was when this came out, and I will note that I did stand in line at a midnight sale to get this record when it when it came out when I was in college. So, start at the top of the lineup. Greg, impressions on balance? Yeah, I got the CD pretty soon after it came out. I mean, I feel like I was first week buyer there. I don't know if I bought it the day it came out, but I, I remember really, really liking it, listening to it a lot. Big Fat Money and and some of the other stuff on the on the second side, particularly the instrumentals and stuff, kind of stuck with me. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the thing that's strange is that the album has taken such a beating critically from Van Halen fans. It's usually listed like, you know, at the bottom of of uh, the top 10, top 12 Van Halen records. And, I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't put it in the top. Well, I'm a Roth guy, so I wouldn't put it in the top six for sure. But, I you know, I wonder it's it's almost, you know, comparing, um, you know, one quality record after another in, in terms of even, the, you know, through the Hagar stuff, I, I think it holds up. Well, I think it holds up better than OU went too, and I, you know it's hard to look at it and go, "This is a weak album." I think it's a strong album. The sales certainly demonstrate that. 1995 at the height of grunge, you know, I think there was probably not a lower moment probably for quote unquote hair metal or or, or that sort of um, party rock, whatever you want to call it, that Van Halen sort of fit into um, than 1995. And to sell that many records and to be that successful is is incredible, really, if you think about it. Because I think on paper. This might, you know, people thought this is going to be the album where Van Halen's going to finally fall flat, and they didn't. It's true, because a lot of bands at this point had made either really the bad crew. attempts at grunge. Yeah, the or... Molly Crew uh, record. I mean, the career killers, right? The ones that come out and that just they just kill the career. Warrant did, I believe. Was it Ultraphobic? Was that the record mm. they made? Yeah, yeah. Dog eat dog. Or dog eat dog. Okay. Yeah, there were a number of attempts of of making darker sounding records i think uh, ultraphobic's in that same category though so that's not incorrect yeah matt your impressions of balance when it came out yeah you know when this record came out um like greg said i mean i recall you know listening to this record a lot and you know really enjoying it um it's interesting that you know now as i listen back to these records um years later out of the uh, four hagar records it's probably um well it's not probably it is my least favorite of the four um, and I just think that it's just kind of a, it's a very interesting record as far as like the material that's on this record, because like coming on the heels of, 
Um, foreign lawful colonel knowledge, which, you know, as we kind of talked about, uh, was kind of described as you know, more of a straight ahead rock record. This record's a little bit more all, all over the map. Um, and this, the, the heavier stuff that's on here, whether it's Seventh Seal or Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do is good stuff. Um, I think, you know, as far as ballads go, Sammy's got some of his better ballads on this record, Can't Stop Loving You and, you know, Feeling and I guess uh, uh, Not Enough and to a point, Take Me Back. But that's also something that kind of surprises me, you know, looking back at this record all these years later, you know, when you hear the criticism that Sammy gets for, you know, for, you know, taking Van Halen into, you know, being a quote unquote ballad band, I think you can kind of lay some of that at the feet of this record because this record re really feels kind of ballad heavy. And then the other criticism that, uh, you know, Sammy gets is for the lyrics and, you know, so songs like Amsterdam and Big Fat Money, like there's some really dumb lyrics on this record. Um, and between the two, like, you know, dumb lyrics and, you know, uh, a, a, a large amount of ballads that kind of sinks this record for me a little bit um, years later. Although, you know, like I said, I mean, the ballads, they're good tunes, but just overall as a record, I don't really enjoy this record as a full listen as much as I used to. The thing I noticed going back is how many instrumentals there are. I mean, there's. Yeah, that's not that wasn't something that Van Halen shied away from throwing an instrumental on. Or two. This has what three instrumentals? I think strung out, doing time, and I don't know how to say the bachelor whatever that word is. Mm -hmm. Kind of felt like so. Then you have really have a, you have nine songs with you know vocals. I wonder if that was a a, a, a part of uh, Sammy quote unquote checking out for this record uh, was the need to put more instrumentals on. Um, just throwing that out there, but well, uh, I think they were definitely I, scraping with this record. Yeah. Well, wasn't one of the songs? I think one of the tracks actually was recorded. Uh, Strung out is was recorded in 1983. Mm -hmm. So, wow. I guess you could say they were scraping a little bit. Eric, your thoughts on balance? At the time that it was released, I thought it was phenomenal. I had the same guy that lent me the copy of uh, Live Right Here Right Now was the one that really championed uh, balance to me. And he was somebody that I really lucked up to. And so it was kind of like, all right, we got we got all this music that we can listen to. And, you know, he was he was a childhood friend. And and uh, so it was it was that bonding sort of thing. But I think around as the more I as the years would go on and I would occasionally come back to balance the less I had a lot of interest in it. And you can, I could kind of see like wham, bam, Amsterdam is kind of a, kind of a silly song. It's not as silly as Mas Tequila, which Sammy would do as a solo <laughs> artist a few years later. When he went into full Jimmy Buffett mode. Well, I mean, he samples rock and roll part two, and then it's just all about Mas Tequila. And uh, I mean, it, it's, it's just, that's a party song. It's not really, there's not much substance to it other than, Let's drink more tequila. Let's get drunk and come on down to Cabo Wabo. Um, 
So, but listening to it again recently, I echo what's been said before is that it's a, it's a very uh, different kind of record. It's not very straightforward as uh, for unlawful carnal knowledge, but still some really good stuff on there. I mean, I always smile when I hear the opening riff of uh, Can't Stop Loving You and, and, and sure. the chorus. The chorus is great. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, it was in retrospect, it was definitely seeing a plane coming in for a landing. It didn't crash, but it was just it was coming in for a landing. Now I'm curious, Chip, did you buy this record when it came out? So if if I uh, if I barely registered for unlawful carnal knowledge, this one absolutely I I have no memory of this album coming out at all. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Here, so here's. Here, here's the thing. I, I think that I might be a couple years older than everybody here, maybe. And there's a couple. What yeah. Did you say? So How maybe, old are you? I'm 36. Oh, I thought you said 26. Like, no, you're no, not. No, no, no. Okay. I look and like so that, I'm 16. That honestly yeah, might, might, go ahead, might I'm be. I'm sorry. sorry. That might be part of the reason why I have different takes on this stuff. Because I was out of college at this point, and uh, you know, uh, having to spend my own money and not. My, not that I'm accusing you guys of this, but you know my parents' money on stuff, and so I was much more selective. And again, if I'm going down the Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, into Green Day, into whatever I was rancid, um, Van Halen was not part of that world at all. And uh, um, but as you guys were talking, two other bands like that for me um, are Rush and Def Leppard. Like both those bands, all three of those bands, I loved. Like when I was. Sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, and even even through high school, and then all three of these bands kind of hit that peak in the '90s, where like I I have not listened to very much of their stuff at all, any of those bands, and I and I loved all three of those bands. Did you buy the Counterparts record? Um, uh, no. Um, really? Not until uh, which one was that? That was the one they put out, I guess that was 93, I think. But I, I kind of put that record from Rush in the same category as Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge as like, you know, um, for both those bands, I think those were interesting records for them to put out at the time. And a lot yeah. of people kind of, you know, call that Rush record, you know, kind of their attempt to kind of meld with, you know, what was happening with grunge at the time. And you can certainly hear that. I don't think I bought that one at the time, but I I, I know it and I have it now. And Balance yeah. is the same way. I bought Balance probably the same time that I bought for unlawful carnal knowledge uh, at a half price bookstore for like a buck. And I bought it like within the last two bucks. What's that? I was just going to say total price, $2. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And, and I, I really honestly kind of bought it for two reasons. One, um, cause I still like to hold CDs in my hand. And I figure if I was going to listen to this digitally, I would never listen to it. So by having it in my car, I would throw it in. I felt like because I had missed it the first time I should at least buy it and give it a try. Although I'll, uh, shamefully admit that I'm not sure that I actually did give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> All right, record, then. Uh, this record represented to me, coming from the Roth era, and that being uh, sort of my favorite, obviously favorite uh, era of the, of the band. I, I really appreciated the energy of 5150, and then they kind of carried it up and, and took it up a notch in some way sonically with Foreign Level Carnal Knowledge. But for me, this record started to show the cracks in this form of the band for me and i kind of equated to like what aerosmith ended up doing at least that's what i felt at the time where they turned into like they weren't going to go grunge so instead they turned into this almost like adult contemporary ish 
safe radio rock band. I just felt like Can't Stop Loving You and Not Enough and a lot of the stuff I was hearing from this record, I just, I, I, I wasn't, I just wasn't passionate about in the way I had been about Van Halen in the past. It just seemed like safe, generic rock music. And that's not what I love Van Halen for. Mm-hmm. You know, there was always an edge there. There was always something like, you know, bring swing into the band and like all of these weird different things that you know, nobody else was doing or sonically just sounding completely different. So while there's a couple songs in here, I still like, there's a lot of stuff on here. I just I mean, not only those ballads, which are, I mean, they're, they're, they're well-written, you know, pop songs. Um, but I don't know. It's not what I want from Van Halen. And then there's some real groaners like Amsterdam and Big Fat Money <laughs> where I just, those come on. And I just, I think about like what Sammy Hagar became after this. And that's basically where Van Halen was headed. Um, I mean, I think it would have been more credible because Eddie just, you know, is going to bring the music to it and, and, and Alex obviously, but from a overall songwriting and lyric standpoint, you know, I think that's where Sammy was going and you can start to see it on this record. And just, not, I was not interested at all in I taking that journey. Is, yeah. This is the sound of a band certainly falling apart and you certainly can't imagine, um, like an A&R department having any input into the process, but this sounds more like the band, if they thought about this at all, you know, basically squeezing out some rock stuff that could be used for rock singles or rock radio squeezing out some stuff that's you know more on the ballad side of things that could be you know used you know across multiple formats and then basically throwing on some other stuff to complete the record and handing the record in yeah totally there's the formula right there nailed it and of course they had aerosmith's producer right yeah that makes sense so you mentioned amsterdam jay i just want to bring that up in the context of the video which I don't know if that was played on MTV because um, it has like a description as the naughty version when you go to YouTube. And basically it's about drugs and prostitutes is what the video is about. It's about Van Halen on their day off in Amsterdam. Sammy going to the red light district and and finding a a lady of the night. A whore. A whore. (laughs) Let's call, let's call it what it is. And then uh, they go to a, like a, a dispensary of uh, various uh, types of... Uh... Reefer. Yeah, there you go. And then they're at a bar drinking. And Alcohol. Like, and, they, I thought, and I thought Eddie was sober at this point, but I, I don't know. They're getting tattoos. I mean, it's 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 completely out, out of, you know, mm. out of control i mean they're just out of control they're and it's funny because the tattoo that eddie gets it says wolfgang and then sammy's getting some tattoo or, or alex and it's just nonsense whatever i don't know what he's getting but uh watching the video now like it seems so tame but i'm sure back in in 1995 the record label or, or mtv might have freaked out like you can't go and be buying weed <laughs> On a, on, in a video <laughs> and Sammy said don't worry one day it's going to be legal in Colorado we'll show you guys Yeah, I feel like I recall seeing the video on MTV and mm-hmm. like I think that there were two versions depending on you know what time of the day obviously it was running um, and you know obviously the one that ran during the daytime just had some modifications you know hence the distinction about you know kind of the unfiltered version but I do recall seeing the unfiltered version on MTV. 
Okay. That makes sense. They used to do that where they'd have like the, the pre 10 o'clock version yeah. and then the one that would be after 10 o'clock. So that makes sense. I think this, this was the first Van Halen record for me where there were some songs where I I was like, I don't like the song. <laughs> you know, like even on OEO sure. 2, there were some songs in there. I'm like, I don't love it, but it's okay. This was the first record I was like, I, I don't like that song at all. I'm not listening to it ever again. <laughs> I'm skipping it. Like I have no interest in listening to that. So that was kind of a shift for me. I was starting to think like, wow, I think I'm moving on from this band. Like we're, this isn't, I'm not going to be staying. Like they're my favorite band ever. And I'm not, I'm not digging where they're going. Whoever it was that mentioned Bruce Fairburn, I think that's a really important thing to, you know, point out because like, if you think about, you know, what he did with like, you know, Aerosmith and the pump record, I mean, I like the pump record a lot, but that's obviously like a very, um, slick formatted record where it's not hard to imagine that every inch of that record, and especially if you saw the documentary about that record, every inch of that record was, you know, debated and they certainly probably laid out everything that they thought they were going to need to have a successful hit album, you know, including, you know, all the different types of radio singles that they needed. So certainly when you take, you know, the idea of Bruce being involved with this record into account, you know, suddenly the track listing and the way this record sounds makes a lot more sense. Totally. Yeah. And one other point in passing before we move on to uh, Van Halen 3 is the the instrumentals. That, that To me, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that sort of echoes back to what they were doing back to Diver Down and some of the early earlier albums where there were always those little interludes, the Spanish yeah. Fly and um, Tora, 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 and these other things. And so I, I'm not sure it was a necessarily all just a filler. I mean, it, I think it's a fair point to say that they could have been short on songs and, well, let's put a drum solo in by Alex, but it's not totally out of character what they had done in the past. Sure. That's right. Well, we can't jump to three without talking about the best of in volume, oh. best of volume one that came out in 1996. This, is, this might be the most important <laughs> section of the story. Well, yeah, because this is where the whole worm turns in the, in the, in the 90s, because you have the departure of Sammy, the return of Dave, the departure of Dave. And you have, uh, you know, just chaos and upheaval and all sorts of things. There's the famous MTV video, you know, interview where, uh, you know, Eddie's gonna like say that again, screaming at the... You better be wearing a cup. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that infamous line. <laughs> In hindsight, for me, as I looked at all these events, the time frame of it all just blew my mind. I mean, this all happens between, from what, I, from what I'm putting together, between like spring of 96 and the fall of 96. My memory was not that it all happened that fast, but that's that, those are the dates I'm pulling. Does that sound right to everybody? Basically, Humans Being comes out in the spring, and by that summer, Sammy's gone, and they're already on to uh, Dave to help finish this Best of Both Worlds. Yeah. And the management switch happens then, which causes all kinds of problems. Then yeah. they do the TV thing. Yeah, the MTV <laughs> like, performance. And then they start auditioning. I just auditioning. have to make a statement here. This is the first time well, all of us have been on the same stage in over a decade. And people cheered. And like nice. Eddie's like, get me out of here. You know? <laughs> well, they immediately go and audition Mitch Malloy to be the singer, even though Dave thinks he's in the band. Yeah. And the constant word I heard during that MTV interview was like, baby steps, baby steps, Dave. Oh, yeah. Not back in the band. I mean, I, I don't know why, but I kept watching that video over and over again. And then Sammy puts out that video, Little White Lie. Oh, know? yeah. I forgot about that. Little White Lie. That was terrible. Is yeah. that on? What album is that on? That's on Mission to Mars. Marching to Mars. Okay. Everybody was obsessed with so, Mars in the 90s. 
so does, does anybody know okay so in hindsight now to me that as a fan this all seemed to be positioned as okay the band's back together now when i go back and look at it it's almost as if eddie didn't think of it that way like did he, he it, it seems like maybe he thought of it as oh we yeah. just did two songs with dave and that's it yeah does anybody know like what's the backstory there what were they doing what were they thinking i think they were trying to finish their contracts <laughs> with warner brothers but did they did at any point within that did they actually like I, well i think the, the thing is that roth was the story isn't the story that even like Ross's father would call over to 5150 in the 90s and be like, Eddie, you got to reunite with Dave. I mean, I literally, I think that that's, I think really? Ross talks about that in his book. And so I think, you know, I can't remember how they didn't, they, they get back together, uh, Eddie and Dave, and talk and smoke cigars or something like that. And Eddie really felt that Dave had changed and, you know, that they, they decided to work on the material. And I think that was the whole, the shebang. But I know certainly that uh, once Ross's career really had begun to take a tailspin, um, he uh, there was more, I think, more and more uh, overtures to try to just call over there and to get Eddie and Dave. And then, of course, when Sammy Sammy's gone, obviously, that's when that really steps up. But I, I think when even when Sammy was in the band, if I remember reading that correctly, I think it was in Roth's book that Roth would be horrified to find out that his father had called over to 5150. Right. Wow. But, but when they went on TV, like if like when Kiss did that, right, that was we're back together, we're putting the makeup on, there's a tour coming like boom, 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 this is all going to happen. So I think it felt like, okay, they came on TV as together and there's this record coming out and he sings on two songs, so that means they're all back together. And I guess that wasn't the case, which made it so strange. Yeah, it was short-lived, you know. And I think around that time they were starting to talk about, like, well, you know, Gary Sharon's our new singer. He's he's a brother. And, uh, I mean, like, at the time, I, I remember, like, when it was announced that Gary was rumored to be the singer, Extreme announced that they had broken up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Extreme had released Three Sides to Every Story, great record. Then they put out Waiting for the Punchline with a uh, future Dream Theater drummer, uh, Mike Mangini. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then, like, great record. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, it, it was kind of like, well, that makes sense. I mean, you have a veteran, but I mean, the sad thing is, is that. Uh, there, that record I don't think was really ever given a chance because it was like, it's not Dave. And listening back to it, I could understand the accusations that it's more of an Eddie Van Halen solo record um, with with Gary Sharon, you know, just kind of fitting the place of it. But like, you know, you look at stuff on YouTube and listen to live bootlegs. Thanks, Matt Wardlaw. Um, it's like. Gary was a phenomenal singer and he sang as well as Sammy did. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it was just, it, it, that also became a one-off thing and you know, that's what it was. So, uh, what was everybody's impressions of, especially the, the Roth Eric fans of me wise magic. I mean, I remember wait, like, Oh my God, this is happening. Like I'm going to hear Dave, Dave sang on a Van Halen song. This is gonna be incredible. What, uh, what'd you guys think when you heard that? on the radio the first time. I didn't hear it on the radio. I wasn't really that blown away by it, but I recently listened to those songs again and I really liked them. 
Yeah, I think sonically, again, sonics are very important for me, and I think that sonically, those songs, the the production on that, those two songs just sounded incredible. Um, I think Roth's voice was a disappointment to me. Um, I don't know what I expected, but it certainly was a far cry from what he had done on um, uh, Little Ain't Enough, for example, back in 91, those five years, and I hadn't really followed his career super closely after that, um, after that album came out. And so I was pretty underwhelmed by his voice and made me concerned to think, oh, well, how could you even do a full album with him? But that said, I have to tell you that as a raw fan hearing, I was driving in my car in Mississippi, I believe, and I heard Dave's back in the band and he sort of like almost drove off the road. You couldn't believe it. And then to find out whatever, some weeks later that that it wasn't going to happen. I was pretty pissed off about that actually. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily like, it's all Eddie's fault, but it was just, you know, I was just pissed by the big, the big dick tease. Let's face it that, you know, you wait for a decade for this to happen. And then like, it's actually going to happen. And then, because all those, you know, Sammy's out of the band. It seems like all the stars are aligning. This is actually going to happen. And then for it to not happen, it's, it really kind of turned me off to, uh, to the whole Van Halen, Enterprise, to tell you the truth, for the time. Oh yeah, and when oh oh, sorry, I was just going to interject. When Sammy rejoined the band after all that shit talking, and seeing pictures of them like acting like they're all happy and all good thing. I mean, it's it's like it's as fake to me as looking at pictures of um, uh, Roth back with the band. I mean, it was just kind of like, well, this isn't going to last. And you mean 2004, whenever they, they got back together with... Yeah, they did the Bust of Boast Worlds uh, yeah. compilation, you know, the two uh, two CD set yeah. with with new Sammy Hagar songs on it. Oh, yeah. for breakfast. Luckily, we don't have to get to that record. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's unprecedented. I mean, uh, these uh, maybe it says something about how this band operates, but like you don't announce reunion-ish kind of stuff unless you've got paper signed and things are booked and there's money on the table and i mean like what's going on with guns and roses right now like the reunion is going to happen here at some point but nobody's going to say anything until contracts are signed and you know everybody's got their money and it's ready to go and that's what it sort of blows me away looking back at this is Apparently they didn't have anything. It was just sort of, you know, Dave came in and sang us a couple songs and it just seems like they said, hey, let's go on MTV and promote the record. And that was pretty much it. And I think in hindsight, uh, like you were saying, Greg, it makes you feel like, what are you guys doing? Like you just totally, I feel ripped off. Like you got me yeah. all excited about something. And, and then like literally within what, 10 days, it was over. And the thing too is, and I, I'll, I'll step away and let other people talk. Is that you know, it's it's not like I was sitting around going, and Ross going to be back in the in the band next month and next month. You know, it wasn't like I was sitting around expecting it to yeah. happen. So, you know, it's just for it to happen where it seems like it's going to happen, and they like right. dangle that for like six weeks or ever, however long it was, and then suddenly it's gone. That's what pissed me off. You know, I feel like um, it's important to point out. Um, or, or just say somebody mentioned, you know, Kiss and the Unplugged thing. I, I know that Bruce Kulick has said that, like, a big part of the reason that that Unplugged thing came about was that, like, the MTV folks kind of, you know, said, you know, we would really like to do this, and what would really make this worth doing is if you could get, you know, Peter and Ace to, you know, come and jam on a couple of songs. And so that was kind of a major, you know, carrot for them to be able to, you know, do the Unplugged thing. And, you know, from Bruce's side of things, you know, um, they kind of knew at that point that like if those guys took the stage with Gene and Paul, it was going to be over for that current incarnation of Kiss. And, you know, here was going to come the big reunion tour and all that kind of stuff. So um, 
I think it's pretty um, easy to assume probably correctly that, you know, if MTV got like word of any sort of renewed activity going on with, you know, Roth, it's very plausible that they would have reached out to the Van Halen camp and said, you know, hey, you know what, this would be really great for the awards show, you know, if we could get you guys to, you know, come out and, you know, make an appearance. Yeah. But I don't doubt that happened, but that's, you know, whoever the whoever the decision makers, was Ray Daniels managing the band at that point? Whoever said yes to that, it was a bad thing to say oh, yes to. I mean, to. you put Roth this in front was... of the camera. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, you, you yeah. knew it was going to go like, I mean, anyone would know it's going to go like that. That's a great yeah. point. This yeah, is you and I would have known it was going to go sideways for sure, no doubt. <laughs> Any Van Halen fan that's paying yeah. attention would know that, like, you know, if you if you walk out there with those four guys without a game plan, you know, with Roth as, you know, one of the four guys, um, it's going to be trouble. And the guy is going to do the talking. He's yeah. not even a fan. <laughs> He's going to do the talking? Exactly. This is you when they switch to uh, Alex's brother-in-law, right, as the manager? Yeah. Which yeah. eventually is why Sammy, one of the reasons Sammy ends up leaving or is fired or whatever the story is. So that makes a ton of sense of why they weren't, they didn't have a pro telling them how to handle this. It is funny though, when you take a look at how long it takes Van Halen to do things, like all the different changes that happened with this band in a short time period, basically in 1996, everything that went on with this band, like it's really not very Van Halen-like to have that much transition and things happen in one year. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. How quickly after the whole Roth debacle was Gary Schoen actually announced? Weeks. Yeah. Was it? Weeks. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it, 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 it fell apart so fast. It was like the day after the thing. Oh, yeah. Eddie and Alex did the interview. And then a week after that, I think you started hearing rumors because he was, um, Gary was uh, managed by their new manager. So I think they started auditioning people. Mitch Malloy was one of the guys you can hear demos of him auditioning. And I think eventually the manager said, hey, I know Gary Sharon, you guys should use him and they eventually came to that agreement but it didn't take very long at all it was shocking <laughs> it was shocking to be like not only is dave not in the band but he's really not in the band because they've actually picked another singer and remember roth writes that open letter right so this is the awards happen roth finds that he's not in the band then roth writes this open letter october 2nd 1996 to whom this make interest. You've probably heard rumors that Van Halen and I will not be consummating our highly publicized reunion. And since neither Edward, Alex, nor Michael and I have corroborated or denied the gossip, I would like to go on record with the following. Eddie did it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it goes on. You know, one other thing that... Um, that Sharon has talked about is that... Uh, and I think you guys kind of mentioned this, but... Um, I mean, they had already been kind of like rehearsing with and, you know, working with him. And so, like, he already kind of thought he was in the band. And at the point that he thinks in, that he's in the band, he turns on the TV and sees those guy on guys on stage with Roth. So he, he got to watch that on television after he already thought he had the gig. And poor Mitch Malloy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how does he fit in all this? He's another guy they auditioned. I, 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 are there other people? Does anybody know any other names? Because I've heard that there's others. Isn't, isn't the story? Well, I think the story about Eric Martin goes way back, right? That goes yeah. back to Sammy, yeah. right? First time around. Mm, yeah. Okay. 
jumping ahead here, but there was one point when that show Rockstar was very popular. You know, they got JD Fortune to front in excess, and there were all these rumors about what the second season was. And MTV, oh, yeah, yeah. MTV ran a story saying that uh, it was going to be Van Halen for the second season. Then they ran an, uh, they ran a retraction and an apology like the following week, and then we got Rockstar Supernova. You know. Yeah, <laughs> boy, Rockstar Van Halen would have been fantastic. Oh my God! If, if they would have, if they would have like leaked the complete tapes of those sessions, that would have been awesome. <laughs> well, since we've been talking about Gary Schroen, we need to talk about Van Halen Three, the album signifying the third singer for Van Halen, uh, released in March of 1998. It was recorded between March and December uh, of 1997. At fifty-one fifty, of course, and the, you know you talked about earlier about Anthony playing bass on all the songs or not. This one in, is one in which uh, Eddie is actually credited with playing bass on this song, according to the liner notes. And supposedly, uh, Anthony only plays bass on three songs on the record, which are "Without You." Um, one I Want and Fire in the Hole. Coincidentally, I believe those are the three singles on this record. Yes. So let's talk about this album because uh, <laughs> this will be the subject of Eric Grubb's next 33 and a third submission. Well, so but- many people want to pretend like it never happened. And I was like, you know what? This was a big deal. And it didn't, I mean, it, it came and went, but. Uh, you know, I, without you, it's got a great chorus. I don't know. There are some times that when I hear about a band spending a long time in the studio and when the results don't sound all that great, you're wondering, why did they spend all this time on stuff that frankly sucks? And I I was not very much interested in the record beyond the song Without You. I mean, the video edit is a great, like, concise, like, three-minute song, but the full album version is, what, five minutes long? Six and a half. Yeah, it's just a, it's it's a little too much, and you know, oh. uh, and, and I, also what I associate with this, and I tweeted at this uh, guys at you guys a few days ago, but there was an MTV show called Fan Club, I believe, where they they hooked up, you know, some of the uh, somebody who was a huge fan of a band or an artist and got to meet him. Like I think uh, Everclear was on there, so it was Ben Folds Five. Um, yeah, I would have totally been happy to be the Ben Folds Five uh, fan, but. It was for another time, but they had this guy that was like a super fan and he was my age and he, he, he interviews Gary and Eddie and he's like, guys, the new record is amazing. Like, Oh, thanks so much, man. It's, it's kind of cringeworthy to watch now, um, knowing how short lived it would be. But I, when I listened to the record, uh, to do this podcast, it seemed like they were trying, this would have been another record that they would have made with Sammy Hagar 
it's just they made it with Gary Sharon instead. And it's kind of uneven, but, you know, you can say the same about balance. Well, I mean, he, uh, in terms of short-lived, I mean, he's technically in the band until, what, 2003? Yeah. Right? So he spent five years in the band, even though they only made one record. Uh, apparently they recorded parts of another one. But uh, I think that makes it even stranger. I don't, I don't know what happened between when this record came out in 2003, but he was still the singer. A lot of silence. As Van, <laughs> well, as Van Halen fans will remember, it's like, I mean, you know, it's yeah. like if you were like, you know, receiving the, you know, Van Halen Inside magazine, it's like there were issues coming out and then all of a sudden there weren't issues coming out because nothing was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never bought the record nor have listened to it. And so I've heard without you, but I never, yeah, I never have. I just, you know, I I heard without you and I liked it. And I just felt again, I sort of like, was like, nah, I'm not doing this. Um, I I just felt embittered about the whole thing with Roth. And again, I don't think, I don't remember my mind thinking like what Roth said is like Eddie did it, but it was just more of this. I'm like these, you know, I'm just not doing it. I'm just not, you know, I did it with Sammy. I'm not doing it with another singer. And I I loved the first two extreme records for sure. And uh, even the third one, I liked the third one too. Um, and so it wasn't anything against Gary particularly, but I was just like, I just, nah, I was just like, nah, I'm not doing this. Yeah, I'm a sucker. I got it. I bought it. <laughs> and yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, revisiting this, I read a re- quick review from All Music and they said it was safe. Like that was the downfall of the record. It was too safe. And I don't hmm. think this record is safe at all. I think this is musically in some ways, as far as Eddie's stretched. Um, uh, to the point of it being progressive sometimes. Yeah. Um, it, it almost sounds like a guitar player, like a, you know, a hard rock, heavy metal guitar player's record that wouldn't even have vocals on it, like a Joe Satriani kind of thing. And then obviously they, they put vocals on a lot of it. So I, I think, you know, if you're going to fault it, there's a lot of things to fault about it, but it, I certainly wouldn't call it too safe. Um, in fact, a song like Josephina is like one of the stranger songs I think they've written. Next to how many say I? Yeah, I was gonna say how many yeah. say I, which is him doing Tom Waits' well, song yeah, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the weirdest song in the history of Van Halen, probably. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Eddie's singing. Um, <laughs> Greg, I'm actually I'm actually you shocked me that you've actually never heard the record because that means you never you haven't heard Eddie sing the way that he does on this record. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think I've heard. I mean, maybe I don't even remember even if I ever played it on YouTube. I don't think I ever went there. I just, I just, I'm not trying to pretend it didn't happen. I know what happened. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it happened. It's just, I was just like, nah, I'm not, you know, Eddie, you're not taking me down this road or whatever. I mean, whoever, again, the whole, all three of those guys reading the band went with Gary, and I just, I couldn't bring myself to, I said, take on another singer. Um, but having said that, I, I actually would have, uh, in an alternate universe would have been curious to hear how Mitch Malloy would have sounded with them because I think Mitch Malloy is a great singer. Yeah, for sure. Did you go see the tour? The the three tour? Yeah. No, I saw the balance tour. I saw a balance tour in uh in Memphis. Eddie was on the stool. Alex had his neck brace on. And uh but uh <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. But uh no I didn't see this tour. Did you? I, I did, yeah. No, I just was, you know, I, I mean you and I have known each other for a few years now, so I mean, I was just uh, similarly shocked to hear that you hadn't listened to this record, but I had like a vague memory that maybe you'd gone to see the tour, so um, 
that would be an interesting thing to go see the tour, not having heard the record, but I'm sure that there's a lot of Van Halen fans, um, or at least a good amount that probably went to see this tour that maybe hadn't heard the record because, you know, maybe they were like you, um, and didn't want to take the trip on a third singer, but, um, still wanted to go see, you know, quote unquote Van Halen. So Mm -hmm. I I wonder how many of those people, you know, went to see the tour without, you know, having the record. I didn't see this tour but i heard great things about it in terms of i mean this is the first time they go back and start playing dave era stuff because gary's like yeah let's let's do this stuff you know i want to sing uh you know all the all the the stuff from fair warning and you know all the cool dave songs and they went back and started learning that stuff and obviously we hadn't heard that for a long time yeah i mean it was a great tour i mean like for me as a van halen fan um, you know, not having seen like, um, you know, the original DLR era of Van Halen, you know, at the time, you know, like I thought that that was going to be as close as I was ever going to get to getting to hear those songs live. So, I mean, um, certainly once word starts to circulate some of the songs that, you know, that they've put into the set list, um, you know, some of which previously had been just relegated to being little snippets within Eddie's guitar solo. Like, I mean, suddenly you start getting really excited, like uh, all this material that you're going to hear that just like has been on the shelf for so many years. So, um, and you know, Gary was a guy that like, I thought he handled, you know, both eras, you know, really well. Yeah. Who opened that tour? Um, geez, I'm going to say Kenny Wayne Shepard collective soul does that sound right mm. yeah 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 i think you're right because kenny kenny wade shepherd i think was 95 and i think collective soul was 98 so i think that's correct and I, and the other thing too they that uh mike got to sing a song and i've, I've seen those on, clips on youtube of uh somebody get me, somebody a doctor. me a doctor yeah that was fantastic so well, and weren't they trading off vocals on that song live that sounds like, right to me yeah yeah i think each one of them took a verse which was pretty fun so but, um, yeah, I mean, as far as this record goes, I mean, um, I think what surprised me years later was um, I thought that this record was, like, say, more put together in advance than it was. Like, what I heard Without You as the first single, I was pretty convinced that that was a song that they had had sitting around, you know, that Sammy would have sung if he was still in the band. That, you know, once, you know, Sammy and the band parted ways, you know, there was just stuff that wound up on this record that Gary wound up having to sing, you know, Sammy Hagar like vocals. Um, but he has said that the album was written as they went along. Um, and I think actually he told me, I think he said that, you know, without you, when he and Eddie got together, that was, uh, the, the first song that they wrote together. So, um, that's what surprised me was that like, yeah. that there was, cause I think when you hear this record, it's easy to assume that Sharon, um, like a lot of folks, when they walk into like a existing band, there's a lot of folks that walk into an existing band situation that maybe the record's been pretty much already, you know, written and they have to like basically sing the record. And it's really not till the next record that they get a chance to put their stamp on things. Um, so it was really interesting to be, you know, hearing him say that like this really did kind of get assembled, um, from the ground up with him, you know, being fully involved in the whole process. I, that is, yeah, that's really hard to. I mean, I, I believe him, but it's just really hard to get my mind around because yeah, it definitely, maybe it's because, I don't know, sometimes his melodies are, at least on the record, at times they just sound a little uh, clumsy, you know, and, and you would think if maybe it's a case where like Eddie was just, maybe they were writing together, but 
that he wasn't really listening to what he was doing. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you know, but it, it, there's moments on here like, okay, clearly he's just trying to come up with something to put over top of this music. And there's moments that it works brilliantly. And there's other moments where you're like, yeah, that was, you know, he tripped a little bit there. I'm not quite sure where we're going. Uh, huh. Especially with the lengths of the songs. I mean, how do you six and a half minutes? I mean, geez. Yeah. There's a lot of long songs. <laughs> A year to the day, I think that one. I think that one when they played it live was like ten minutes. It once it has kind of like the right now sequel feel to it, and that's like seven forty three. <laughs> well, Michael Anthony implied in interviews that he felt that this was that Eddie was making a solo record. Um, the quote was, "I don't know." Well actually he sort of said that he said i don't know if eddie was basically making a solo record which is van which is what van halen 3 seemed like to me i don't know there was rumors of him making a solo record in the 2000s wasn't there it feels like whenever the band goes quiet there's a rumor of eddie making a solo record <laughs> right i mean like before uh between 2004 and 2008 wasn't there there was like that weird porno soundtrack he did mm -hmm. and Wait, what? Yeah, he did like, right? He did it like a yeah. soundtrack to some porno movie. It's like, and he even did a video for something. It was, it was awful. I mean, it's just for him. Just, I don't know. Ironically, it was called Van Halen Rising. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So as we close out the 2000 or the, or the 1990s for Van Halen, this is an odd note to end on. Uh, is that a... You know, a universal thought that, that Van Halen 3 is really more of a footnote in the overall history of the band than a, an era. The way we think of the Roth era, the Hager era, this is just a, oh yeah, and by the way, Gary Schroen was on one album. Or, yeah, or, or does it deserve its own time period? Yeah, I don't even think Gary says that, you know, he, I think he's always the first to step up and say there was the, you know, Roth era, there was the, you know, Hagar era, you know, and he, you know, will not, you know, qualify his, his time as a real era. Like, I mean, it's just a, it's just a record. And I think that, I think Eric said this at some point, but, um, I mean, I think it's a record that deserves more credit than it gets. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a bad record. You know, the thing that I've long, meaning <laughs> for several months at least, or, or uh, maybe a couple of years, I suspected that the, the, the negative response that Eddie got to this record has really been something that has a long-lasting effect on him. Uh, to me, he's sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the J.D. Salinger of, of uh, rock guitar now. Uh, he, he has all these music he's recorded, and when they had the opportunity, has already been alluded to, to put out um, new material, well, not alluded to, it's been stated clearly, that uh, th they decided to dip into the vaults and, and redo the demos with, with Roth. So he didn't release much new music, if any, um, new music on A Different Kind of Truth. And so I, I always wonder if this was sort of Eddie had sort of bared his soul musically and it just got such kick to the curb by so many people that, uh, you know, he's never really, I mean, he really hasn't put out much of anything since then. If you think about it, it's been yeah. years and years where there hasn't been, these are new songs I've written. Take these 10 songs. What do you guys think of them? Meaning fans, check this out. And it's just, that hasn't happened. And so I, I that to me is like, you know, yeah, the, the whole Van Halen 3 experiment really drove Eddie into even more into a creative show. That, yeah, that's, when I was listening to it, that's really what I was thinking too. Is that not knowing any of the story behind it, but uh, it seemed a little maybe low pressure. You know, you bring in 
Gary, you can easily go on the road and do the songs that everybody already knows. And I was actually surprised when I looked up the set list from this tour that they actually included a couple of songs from three on the tour. Because mm-hmm. um, I would have thought it could have been a, a greatest hit set. And this is just like you were saying, like uh, an Eddie getting a chance to do some stuff that he didn't have the luxury of trying during the David Lee Roth or, or Hagar days. Because there's some weird songs on this. Like they're not. I, so I started streaming it a couple weeks ago in getting ready for this. And that was the first time I'd heard it. And then uh, actually <laughs> I stopped on the way home from the Browns game physical copy tonight. And uh, as I was listening to it, I think it took like it wasn't until Fire in the Hole that I if if I had listened to this album when it came out and heard the songs on the radio. Fire in the Hole was the first song on that album that I would have been like, this is a Van Halen song. Like the other ones, I don't know. They didn't strike me as Van Halen sounding. Yeah, there's even like less distorted guitar. Yeah, here. I was I was surprised when I went back and listened how much clean guitar there is. The guitar tone is really different. Yeah, so I could totally see that if you hadn't heard it going back, it would have been a little hard to place who it was for yeah. a while. Do we think uh, so? I mean, maybe this isn't isn't realistic, but in theory, this is the material that Dave would have came in if they would have he would have learned how to. You know, get along with them better. Maybe not talk so much. Uh, this is the material probably that they would have been trying to work on to do a full record, right? So I can hear them doing songs like One I Want. I mean, but there's stuff like, I mean, like Fire in the Hole. There's a lot of stuff on this record that I just can't hear him doing. Yeah. I mean, so from, do you th- from, from afar, like I can't hear him doing that. I mean, like the more you look at the track listing for this record, it does feel kind of, you know, tailored to, to somebody like Gary, um, but, you know, not necessarily tailored at all with the fact that they might've had, you know, Roth on deck. Like, I mean, it, it, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that happens after they kind of, you know, lay in like say the lyrics and the vocal melodies, but like instrumentally, I don't even know if this stuff would have, you know, worked as like an existing template for, you know, Roth to come in and start firing away on. Cause yeah, usually it's, it's not that different than me wise magic. Right. I mean, it's kind of yeah. headed in that, headed down that path yeah it's it's not like the situation where motley Crue was working on a record that they hoped was going to be their second record with john karabi well vince neal comes back into the picture and they put out generation swine so right. it's very much like this was a record written for john karabi's voice but instead it's vince neal's voice and it just kind of sounds like a big train wreck yeah yeah you know the other thing we didn't um fit in here is that I, I was remembering back to this timeline and this and that in early 2001 um roth announced that he had worked on songs with eddie at 5150 had written what three songs in 2000 so i know this doesn't fit into our 90s thing but i'm not quite sure how that all fit in with i guess sharon quits in late 1999 and then eddie called <laughs> called dave again and said hey in march uh you know come on up and uh work and so march 2000 they worked on on songs and um apparently those songs were were semi-finished but uh of course we've never heard them yeah i had never heard that story that's fascinating so that falls apart and then and then sammy and eventually is back yeah Yeah, it's up on mtv news from uh early 2000 yeah april 2001 ross says he spoke out about regrouping with his former bandmates calling the music that he and guitarist eddie van halen wrote together astonishing uh, and said that they, yeah, they wrote them in uh, last March. Three astonishing tunes 
Oh, that was last July. I guess they, they maybe this happened between March and July of 2000 and said, I haven't been up to the studio since last July, but I'm holding forth. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Is that astonishing that uh, Eddie didn't kill him while they were in the studio? <laughs> yeah. Is that his usage of uh, astonishing? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, hearing about how, like, it, seeing them now live is entertaining. But, you know, Roth, Roth didn't really have a singing voice back in the day. But, man, he was such a great entertainer on those early records. And, the, and that's what sure. really holds up about those records. But now it's it's kind of a shit show. I mean, it's it's I mean, like now, granted, we all have seen bad nights and people have great nights at the same time. But anytime people want to talk about, oh, man, yeah, it's so much better than Van Halen's well, the real Van Halen's back. I love to post this thing from YouTube <laughs> and it's of jump being performed in Greensboro, North Carolina on the first <laughs> reunion tour with with uh, Roth back and the keyboard and guitar are in completely different tunings. And yeah. and uh, Eddie's guitar sounds more like an air siren, and yeah, yeah. and yeah. I mean it, it's it's Early disappointing. On. And plus, like not having Michael Anthony in the band, and even though Wolfgang is a great uh, talented musician, there's only one Michael Anthony, especially hitting those high notes. I mean, those high notes, you know, he, hearing him when he sings "Running with the Devil." It's like there's no replacing that. And so I really have no interest in seeing Van Halen live now. Um, and that's why I posted the quote unquote controversial opinion a few months ago on Facebook about like, I'd rather see them with Sammy Hagar than with the current, in the current <gasps> of it than, than with, uh, with Roth now, because it'd be a much more entertaining show. Did uh, you guys see? You're did you, did you yeah. guys see that uh, um, Wolfie? on his uh, Instagram and Twitter, posted a little five-second clip of him playing right now on the yeah. piano. And on these I people. did see that. I, you remember going, taking things full circle as we probably start to wrap things up, uh, how I'm, I've become the uh, the person people have asked these questions of, and you know, people are just yeah. you know, messaging me, does that mean Sammy's back? I'm like, I don't, I don't think so, but maybe, yeah. you know, maybe Sammy's back because Wolfie has played right now on the piano, but I think probably more likely his dad just likes the song. He hey, likes, just likes his yeah. dad's song. Matt, you just talked to uh, Sammy, right? I did, yeah, pretty recently. Is he back? Yeah. <laughs> Break the news, Matt. I'm going to I'm gonna defer, you know, Greg is the source. I'm going to defer oh. to him to make the announcement, you know? <laughs> well, listen, if, if Wolfie plays, um, I don't know, uh, some more songs on the piano by Van Halen, I think, from the Hagar I think we'll know for sure that Sammy is definitely, definitely back. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, even I, when it got to the point of when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, ugh. the Halen brothers didn't even show up. What a shit show that was. Excuse my language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was embarrassing. Yeah, because so, it was just Sammy and Michael, right? You know, doing awful. that. And, yeah. Yeah. So I I, uh, I want to tie together something Greg said about Van Halen 3. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't listen to it ever. <laughs> well, no, like it being like Eddie putting himself out there and then really uh, still recovering from that. And I think the whole uh, Michael Anthony, the whole point about, you know, Michael Anthony not being in the band, why don't they have him in the band, blah, 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 blah. Here's the thing that, that I think that everybody, I think, can't maybe move it, put their head around because I think no other band is like this because there's no two brothers who have basically have never fought. If you think about any brothers in bands, like Eddie and Alex have never had any problem. Like think about their Robinson brothers. Think about any brothers and bands. The guys, Gallagher's. The Kings, they always fight. These get these two have never 
it's never been uh, an issue between the two of them. It's them versus everybody else. Brent, so, do you think that's true? <laughs> I, 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 they've never, well, they've never uh, fought in a way that I think has split the, you know, has split the band. But I, I think that uh, Alex has punched Eddie in the face more than a few times. Right, but it, I they just would, gotta think there's been some epic throwdowns at fifty one fifty. But it's never been something that split the band apart. It's always right. been somebody yeah, else. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. So sure. to me, the the only reason Van Halen exists now or in the future is because Eddie wants to play with his son. So, you know, Michael's not coming back in the band because Michael's not Wolfgang. And I think Eddie loves to go out and play music because he wants to get on stage with his brother and his son and play music. He said so, that, hasn't he? He's, I think, said, yeah, around roundabout. So I think that's the thing that I think everybody needs to get their head around. Like, if you want to see Van Halen, it's going to be in the context of Eddie wanting to get on the stage and play with his son because that's all mm-hmm. he cares about at this point. You know, there's no money in the world or nothing, anything else that's going to get him out and play with Michael Anthony or anybody else. Now, when it comes to the singer, it's kind of like, I think Tim touched on this early when we started, is that, you know, Eddie become or uh, Wolfgang becomes the the rudder. Like he says to his dad, "Hey, you know, this is really cool," and gives him that uh, maybe that um, satisfaction he can't get, you know, from other people because it's his own son. And says, "Hey, you know, this old material you wrote is really cool. We should play this again." So if they're going to do Sammy stuff ever again, it's probably because Wolfgang's going to say, "Hey, Dad, you know, fifty one fifty is a great album. We should play that. That'd be a, you know, that'd be a blast. People would love it." And I'm sure that's what would cause. <laughs> You know, the way I read this whole situation, that's how a reunion would eventually happen. Um, yeah, which in a way certainly is certainly not going to be Roth. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, Matt, what do you think happens next? I don't want to. I don't want to steal another episode, but I want Matt Wardlaw's ten seconds on what happens next with Van Halen. You know what? I think it's really tough. Um, I mean, I think that, like, you know, over the past, you know, fifteen, twenty years, we're used to like, you know, frequent you know, long delays of nothing happening from Van Halen. So, I mean, I really think that um, it's possible that these guys pull it together and do another record with Roth. I think we'll see that. I think that um, that the that a different kind of truth was um, well-received um, to the point that um, I think that they would see positive reception happening for another record with Roth. I would say that a different kind of truth was kind of the testing ground for that. Um, and, you know... I bought use, that one. Using... <laughs> using... <laughs> Using Van Halen 3, you know, as kind of like the opposite of that, it's just like, you know, if Van Halen 3 was, you know, kind of a test move from Eddie, you know, putting it out there with the third singer and that bombs, you know, so he quickly moves away from that. You know, if we if it would have gotten the same reception, you know, with a, a different kind of truth, that the mm-hmm. same thing would have happened. I think you could have seen um, similar fireworks eventually. Um and certainly there have been fireworks, but I think that ultimately I see these guys putting it back together and doing another record with Roth. Maybe their last record with Roth. So what was all the posturing uh, around what Eddie San basically like at one point Eddie saying, I got, I want to work on music. We, we just got to get Dave. And then there was another point like a year before that where Dave's like, I want to work on music, but we got to get Eddie. Like, what was all that about? Like what's going on there? What's your what's your take on how to well, put that t- together into a new record? Um, I'll let Greg speak on that a little bit, but uh, you know, I mean, I think that um, I think that's what's what is interesting about this band is to me is that like 
if you go back to like say the foreign lawful kernel knowledge days like there's now you know pretty hard evidence that Eddie was, you know, just as much of a mess, you know, as far back as that as he has been in recent years. Like maybe they just had better handlers that kept a kind of a lid on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's kind of interesting now is that like it doesn't really seem like there's anybody keeping a lid on Eddie and Eddie and it doesn't seem like there's anybody keeping a lid on Roth, if that's possible. So both of those guys if somebody asks them the question, they're both just, you know, kind of speaking without any sort of filter. Um, I know I've heard stories about like Eddie doing interviews, like say in the past where it's like they did like say an entire interview and then like, you know, a phone call was made like, you know, hey, we don't like the way that interview went down. Can we do another interview? And it just doesn't mm -hmm. seem like there's anybody running interference when, you know, when when stuff goes sideways um, to, you know, make sure that the right version of Eddie is presented to the public that they're familiar with from across the decades. It's like now you kind of just get, you know, whatever version of Eddie shows up the day that he picks up the phone or shows up to do the interview. Well, I did notice that when they did the uh, different kind of truth promo, uh, well, they did know, I didn't see them do any interviews at all. It was a different kind of promotion. <laughs> yeah. And then I noticed for this live record and tour, all of a sudden there seemed to be some interviews, which not, as a fan, I kids. <laughs> yeah, well, not with, but not with Roth. They turned us down. Not with Roth. Right. Not with Roth. Kind of made me scared when I saw that they were doing interviews because I'm like, oh, boy, it's only a matter of time till somebody says something stupid and this whole thing's over. <laughs> well, Eddie did that interview. At, what was it? Was it with um, Hollywood Reporter? Was that the? Nope. The one billboard billboard where like he just like let loose on a whole bunch of stuff. And like some of it was like, I don't speak to Dave. We'd basically just show up at the venue and we get on stage. Was that like the gist of what he was saying? Like it, it seemed like he was not a happy camper. I mean, Greg and I talked about this. I mean, there's, you know, what I told Greg is there's a lot of bands that like, I feel like if stuff like that goes down, like there's a lot of bands that would like, you know, pull the plug on a tour. And I think that Van Halen just had too much at stake to pull the tour. But like, I mean, I think if there's any way that they could have pulled a tour, it seems like that's the kind of stuff that, you know, went down that would cause an entire tour to get scrubbed. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say for the, the record, I've thought a lot about this. I don't think Roth silence is an accident. I'll just put it that way. I think that's yeah. part of a, a larger plan if you guys read between the lines there i don't think that was just roth choosing not to speak i think that mm. was something that i'm not sure that he had um a choice now that's just my speculation my pure speculation but that's yep. my spec it's just for a guy who you couldn't keep him away from a microphone under any any circumstances yep. at any time would talk to anybody pretty much um not to do any interviews at all during the tour not well, to who was, who, who was handling who was handling press on this tour I mean, I think that was Salters. But I thought it was, wasn't it Eddie's wife? It was Eddie's wife, yeah. It was It was a combination. I want to say that there was, you know, somebody from the Van Halen, somebody for the Van Halen side, and then somebody um, on, on Roth's side of things. Hmm. Well, the person on Roth's side of things had a fairly, <laughs> kept the schedule <laughs> fairly uh, empty, wouldn't you say? I mean... Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing you didn't mention, but I know we've talked about it, is like, you know, Roth pulls all of his social media accounts, you know, I mean, like, complete silence. Yeah, that was odd. When That happened right before the live record came out, right? A few months before it? Yeah, I think the last time I saw Roth do anything on social media was when he did that little 
impromptu video introduction for the uh, the Hot for Teacher remake, which of the woman's name is escaping me. But the, there was that video that was on uh, YouTube of the of the uh, the woman in the blonde wig mm. who did the Hot for Teacher re- remake. Roth did a little introduction for that. Was her name Trish something? That's her name Trish something. And uh, I don't think he did anything after that. Um, I mean, literally nothing. Very strange. Someone put the clamp down. Um, that's my speculation. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just an ongoing saga. And, you know, in the 90s, we got some great albums. In the 80s, we got some phenomenal stuff. I still think the very first Van Halen record is one of the best debut records of all time. I mean, it's just one winner after another. And in the quality really it was stayed intact throughout the 90s, but it just started to come on down and I I don't think what I don't think Van Halen could ever break up until one of the brothers dies you know mm-hmm. I, th- I think you know there, there'll always be a desire and when people hear that oh David Lee Roth is back with the band the hope is is that it's going to be as exciting as it was when Roth was originally in the band but there is just too much public dirty laundry drama where you know people like us we there's some conflicted things about you know we're not going to pick up this record but we'll go see this show you know down the line it's it's just it's a very fragmented story that people would prefer to just remember it as david lee roth and that's it and uh you know as as i stated before and i'm now trying to say this in a, in a very calm manner is like you know the sammy years were very important and uh i will not back down from that so and and gary sharon also stepped in in, a, in an awkward time in the band and helped keep them going but uh you know if people want to prefer to just see the david lee roth version okay but you know it's not really for me well it's it's you know they're a band similar to kiss where like there's there's parts of the band you don't like or do like or you like more than others but like you accept you have to accept the whole thing as part of the part of the full picture if you're really a fan and understand Mm -hmm. why certain things happen and and that sort of thing so I mean, I saw the reunion tour with Roth. I saw the different kind of truth tour and they're a different band now. I mean, the guy's in his mid to late sixties. So, I mean, he can't go out and, I mean, he's still in great shape, but you know, he's not going to be doing the scissor kicks anymore. You know, Oh yeah. The baton stuff is long, but you know, when you're in the venue and they're playing those old songs, it's a blast. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you scrutinize it on a live record or YouTube clips or whatever, you're like, Oh boy, you know, but I just loved hearing him play those songs, you know, and I think yeah. Wolfgang does a does a pretty good job, you know, holding up his end of it. And for the most part, it's as close as I'm ever going to get to to seeing the the original band. So I'm just lucky that I got to see the Sammy era and the and a version of the Dave era. That's you know, it's a different band now. You know, I'd rather have this than nothing. Let me throw this question out to uh, put a bow on this particular episode. Did Van Halen survive the '90s? Not necessarily that they, you know, came back, but was the band, did the 90s, you know, do damage to the band in the, in the sense that the cultural landscape changed? You know, if, if Nirvana had not happened and, and let's say Mother Love Bone had become the, the band of the decade, would Van Halen have gone a different path or, or maybe not ended with Sharon, maybe Sammy continued to be in the band. I'm just curious, was this was this a a positive decade for Van Halen or a negative decade for Van Halen? Let's go around the room. 
Greg? Uh, you know, it certainly started on a, such a high note, um, as we talked about with uh, the Foreign Lawful Carnage record, and then to think about where it ends up with Van Halen 3, um, you know, maybe if we look at what Eddie thought Van Halen 3 was, I'm sure he felt like he was at his peak creatively, and he was making all these decisions not based on how much booze he drank that day, but, you know, how he was clear-minded and writing these great songs, but it certainly, I think, ended on a very, very low note. And so, again, I'll go back to my point I made a moment ago, which is that, for me, I haven't seen a whole lot of production out of Edward Van Halen um, in terms of songwriting, at least in terms of what he wants to produce to the public since the three record. Um, there's been, you know, little things here and there, but really um, there's been one full-length record in, in some tracks. And so I think it did real damage to the band, the 90s and the end of the day. Matt? I think it's an interesting thing to ponder. Uh, I know that, you know, Sharon has talked about how he wishes that, you know, that the band would have gone out and done a tour first and then gone and made a record. And I think that if mm. they would have done that, um, I think it could have been a slightly different picture. I think that Van Halen overall, you know, emerges from the 90s, like the 90s end up being maybe a B plus decade for them, um, you know, based on the three records that they put out in the 90s. But I think the way that it unfolded where it's like they made the record first before they really became a band and then went out and toured. I think it's um, it's a record that that I I enjoyed and, you know, I can still listen to and in, enjoy. But I think it's kind of it kind of puts an awkward um, period on the 90s for Van Halen. So it ends up being a C plus C minus decade for the band. Um, you know, basically they made, you know, uh, two out of three records, uh, you know, with Sammy. And when you look back at those two records, I think that it was a solid shot with uh, Foreign Lawful Colonel Knowledge. I think that they slipped a lot with um, the balance record, you know, because you have a band that's falling apart. And then I think that they just, they commit an unbelievable number of fumbles as they are on the way through 1996, figuring out their next move. And by the time they emerge and do the whole Van Halen three thing, the way it was executed, like, I think that the decade um, uh, ends in, it, it ends in a troubling way for the band. Almost Cleveland Brown like you would say. Oh my <laughs> god! On, I'm sorry, like Chip. The Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> so, oh, sorry you yeah. wasted that drive to Cleveland, Chip. Sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. Hey, I I just paid hundreds <laughs> of dollars for Directv to watch it, so at least I didn't have to get in the car. Chip, your negative, positive thoughts on the '90s for Van Halen. So I would say, thank God they had such a great 70s and 80s, because in my mind, the 90s Van Halen doesn't exist. And I'm OK with that. Wow. That's that is uh, that's stark. Chip, you can't deny it. Sammy was in the band, you know, in the, number one records. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Two of them that came out in the 80s, which I loved. I love those records. I love it. I know you guys don't seem to like OU812 that much, but I like that one. I, I actually really do like OU812. I, I listened to that considerably more than for lawful carnal knowledge i might even 5150 might be in my top two favorite van halen records so i mean i i definitely like the sammy hagar era i just uh i ignored them in the 90s and i don't feel any i don't feel bad off for doing that interesting eric sir (laughs) i would say that doesn't really necessarily matter what was going on in the music industry outside of Van Halen, Van Halen did themselves in. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's unfortunate. And it, it, 
there i don't really know how is the best way to kind of end this story on the band because lots of great singles lots of great albums but it, it like matt said lots of fumbles have happened along the way to the point of it's just gonna be like well the current version you see of van halen is the current version that's getting along that everybody's getting paid everybody's happy but i think some uh lines have been crossed some things have been made public that it'd be very hard to ever go back to the way things have been in the past i mean when when hearing about how that uh they didn't even want to try to release brand new songs that are just having to go back over old songs from the vault and just have Roth sing over them. That, that to me says that they're, it's a band that's kind of scared of really saying something new. They just really want to give the audience the, the, the original experience of what it was like to see Van Halen to Van Halen one to Diver Down. Maybe to Fair Warning, <laughs> you know, and can't stress enough, Fair Warning was not a popular record when it first came out. A lot mm -hmm. of people hated it. And it's just, it became more of a critical favorite. And a lot of people would be like, hey, this record's really not that bad. Oh, yeah, they don't change songs. Really awesome. And so it, 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 and, but how can you, how can you really follow up making something as brilliant as Jump or Running with the Devil or even Eruption? And hell, even as a fun way of uh, making good cover songs, but their version really got me. In some aspects, it's better than the Kinks. So it, it's it's really a situation where, you know, hey, the band had a good run. They're still active, but as far as, like, relevancy about, like, talking about their records, I don't know how much, you know, if, if somebody, like, did a dig me out of, like, the aughts, is there going to be an entire episode devoted to Van Halen and the aughts? I don't think so. Well, think we have to it. talk about Up for Breakfast, so. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> no, we, we really don't. <laughs> um, We're learning to see. <laughs> Sorry. That's where that... Uh, so, Tim, you brought up, uh, I think, early on here about, you know, did they do what a lot of these bands did, where they tried to follow what was going on? And I think, for the most part, I feel like they did a lot of things wrong, but that's not one of the things they did. I think a lot of... Well, I think all the music they made in the 90s sounds like them, almost to maybe to a fault. I don't know. But yeah. I think Eddie's a pretty isolated dude when it comes to music. And maybe Wolfgang's kind of turned him on to some other things now. But I think he's famous for at least publicly not ever admitting he's influenced by anybody or listening to any current or contemporary music. <laughs> um, and I think in the 90s, it's hard to say, you know, find an example of like, okay, they were totally trying to do, you know, Pearl Jam here, you know, with a lot of bands, you can start to figure that out. So I think what's interesting is that one of the, uh, probably the, the breaking point was humans being because from the, at least the way it's portrayed on the internet, it sounds like that came down to lyrics, like Eddie basically wanting better lyrics for that song and Sammy being distracted with some other stuff going on and, kind of doing his balance, you know, mailing it in type thing. And uh, Eddie claims he wrote, rewrote the lyrics for that. And essentially then the management comes in and eventually that spirals into Sammy being out of the band and all the things we talked about happening. So in some ways I'm wondering if that was, um, you know, sort of that 
artistic or I don't know, whatever Eddie was going for there, if that had anything to do with the decade or not, or him feeling like they needed to step their game up or, you know, be taken more seriously after balance. But uh, maybe that's the one part where it, it sort of surfaces in terms of the decade, like hitting the band. Hmm. I, I just always felt like at least the lyrical content of Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do was tilting towards some of the darker themes of the 90s with the drugs and and whatnot. Not necessarily the music, but you know, I think Sammy w- at least was influenced by it. Yeah. I mean, now on uh, Best of Both Worlds, I know we're, we're going to get into that, but I will say that like guitar tone-wise and riff-wise, the new songs on there, I mean, he's totally doing the drop D, like, you know, metal thing that was popular in the early 2000s. So that was certainly a point where you were starting to see him acknowledging that he was paying attention to what was going on in rock music. We didn't even get into the the, the co-headlining tour of Sammy and Dave. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we shall not. Because it's, we're at the two-hour mark, and that's a good point for us to wrap up uh, this particular episode. So I need to thank everyone who took part. Greg... Your book, Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Part Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. It is available all over the internets, but people should go to vanhalenrising.com, correct? Yeah, and, and certainly feel free to follow me at Greg Renoff on Twitter. Excellent. Matt Wardlaw, your recent interview with Sammy Hagar is quite relevant to this conversation. You can learn about his cooking. And um, (laughs) (laughs) number one in Latin American foods, baby, on Amazon. Tell you what, we went from you know Greg Rinoff's awesome thing to Sammy Hagar talking about food. That might just like sum up the division between the DLR Army and Van Hagar fans. There you go. Speaking of Van Hagar, says he's allergic to bad food. That's one of the things on the back cover of the book, Matt. I've looked at it closely. And we can find you writing at places like Ultimate Classic Rock and Cleveland Scene and other locales. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this is a lot of fun, guys. Thank you for and joining they, us. And they can find me on Twitter at uh, mwardlaw. So that's where I can be found. Or they can just uh, go after Greg Renoff at Greg Renoff. And uh, <laughs> Greg, uh, Greg and I talk enough uh, Van Halen smack back and forth that they'll find me that way eventually. <laughs> And uh, speaking of Van Hagar fans, we need to thank uh, Eric Grubbs for uh, joining us, Thanks. the defender Thanks, of the faith. For yes. uh, Mr. I'm a I am a Van Halen fan, not just a Van Hagar fan, a Van Halen fan. Excellent. Okay. Well, you're in, you're in good company, Chip. Can, uh, what's what's some um, coming up on Kids Interview Bands? Who we got? Break us break us off something new. Here's my hint: Junior Mints. Ooh, Junior Mints. Got a couple juniors coming up. Okay. We got Albert Hammond Jr. <laughs> Albert Hammond Jr. and uh, Junior Jr. Junior Jr. What about Junior Senior? No Junior Senior. Oh, okay. No, Junior Junior is the band formerly known as Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr. Right, yes. So we're doing that one and, and Albert Hammond Jr. this week. From the so, Strokes. From the Strokes. Excellent. Nice. Very cool. Well, I want to encourage everybody who has comments. I can't imagine that anybody would have a comment about Van Halen. I mean, that doesn't seem like a topic that people talk about on the internet, but 
Uh, we'll just uh, throw it out there. If you have a comment, head on over to our Facebook or Twitter or our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. Uh, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. It's the-